Welcome to Nature Insight. Speed dating with the future. I'm Britt Garner. I'm a science communicator and PhD student in interdisciplinary studies. And I'm Rob Spall, the head of communications at IPPUS, the world biodiversity platform for science and policy. In the same way that actual speed dating challenges us to make a lasting and positive impression in just a few minutes, this is the podcast where we try to impress upon you, our listeners, the incredible importance of biodiversity. Every person we introduce you to each week on this podcast is working on the front lines of research, policy, and action for nature. They're all part of our diverse IPBIS expert community of knowledge holders, and decision-makers. Rob, when I first read the IPBIS Global Assessment, I was really taken by how varied and interconnected different knowledge systems are and how they played themselves out throughout the assessment. You know, knowledge itself is a resource, and you can think of it like energy. It's a resource that can be used and shared within the ecosystem of policymaking. Yes, Brett, I think that's exactly right, because one of the recurring themes that we've heard in all four of our first episodes has been the importance of system-wide transformative change for nature. And the findings of the IPPUS Global Assessment made it clear that all decision-makers have vital roles to play in leveraging this change. In this episode, we're going to look at how business and the involvement of business leaders is key to achieving the kind of change that scientific evidence suggests is needed. There are clearly intrinsic links between biodiversity and business. There are indeed, Brit. Every business has an impact on biodiversity through its actions, and many of them, especially those in the more extractive industries, are still deeply harmful to nature. I think it's also fair to say there are members of the conservation community who see any kind of collaboration with business as inherently negative for nature. But it's totally a false dilemma, isn't it? The idea of it being nature or business, whereas there's absolutely an intersection and an and there, business and nature. And in fact, I know that I've seen both in news articles and in speaking to colleagues that many fashion brands are actually becoming more conscious about committing to protecting biodiversity and thinking about the impacts they have on these natural systems. In fact, IPBIS has partnered with one of the world's most influential luxury groups, Caring, precisely because they've committed to protecting biodiversity and to reducing their impact on nature. In a short while, I'm going to share an interview I did with their Chief Sustainability Officer, Marie-Claire DeVoe. But first, I spoke to someone who is very much part of the dialogue about transforming the world of fashion and of business. Samata is a British-born Ghanaian and a fashion and sustainability activist who's already been successful in persuading some of the world's most high-profile influencers and celebrities to take a new approach to their fashion choices. She's also the CEO of the Red Carpet Green Dress campaign, which uses the Oscars to showcase ethical fashion. So I started by asking her about this campaign. So Red Carpet Green Dress was kind of conceived when our founder, Susie Amos Cameron, and her husband, James Cameron, were going to the Oscars. They were nominated for Avatar. And I think everybody knows that on that red carpet, the most frequently asked question is, what are you wearing? What are you wearing? And so instead of just allowing that to end with a brand name, they wanted to open the door to a conversation about sustainability and fashion. 
So that's why we kind of initially started with the Oscars. But honestly speaking, as a platform, it's so, so, so impactful. We have hundreds, millions of views each year with that red carpet. And it gives us the opportunity to speak to the mainstream world about the way that fashion is operating and really shine a spotlight on that in a way that's, I think, a little bit unexpected. (laughs) (laughs) I think if you were to ask my family, they would say I was probably the least fashionable member of our family. So perhaps you can help me. What is sustainable fashion? Because I imagine it goes a long way beyond just looking at how garments and textiles are being made, right? Absolutely. And I would just say on that thing that you just said about kind of if I were to ask my family, I think that's one of the issues with sustainable fashion right now. And I don't know if it's the word fashion. And I don't know if we just took that away and said clothing. It becomes something that people can relate to right now a bit more because we all wear clothing every single day. And so we're all part of this conversation, whether we are aware of it or not. But when it comes to sustainable fashion, it really talks about more than the design. Yes, there's the products. Yes, you're talking about the materials that have been used, how the textiles have been processed, the kind of dyes that have been used and down to the packaging and how clothing is moved around the world and how it's presented to consumers. But sustainable fashion is so much more than that. It's the fair treatment of people who are making our clothing and ensuring that they have fair pay. It even comes down to the environment and biodiversity and the depletion of natural resources. So there's so much to sustainable fashion that I think at the surface, people just assume, oh, that must be a hemp t-shirt, right? (laughs) Like, I've got it, I get it. But it's so much more than that. It's incredible because it sounds like there's almost a story behind the clothing that we're wearing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely there is. And I think without a story of who made my clothes, what did they use, who is this impacting, it becomes too hard to make people care about fashion's impact on the planet. And so knowing what we know about the impact that humans are having on the planet, fashion's part of that as well. So if you really assess the business chain or the value chain, there isn't really a single link on that chain that doesn't impact biodiversity or have a causal or dependent relationship on it whether you're looking at packaging and transportation and logistics of clothing, of anything, there's plastic involved in that. And we all know the plastic problem that we're facing globally right now. Or if you're looking at maybe materials, there's a raw material usage there, which is coming from nature, or at the very least, it's impacting nature. So I think once we start understanding the stories behind how we have what we have and connect it back to the impact that it has around us, then I feel that we're more likely to be more curious about what we're buying and maybe a bit more selective. Are there any good examples that you have or that you could share about changes in consumer choices, perhaps? Because we've talked a bit about the business side. What about the demand side? What I'm enjoying right now, what I'm seeing more is the vocal informed consumer. It started, for me, the awareness of the consumer's voice applying pressure. It was really around fashion revolution and that whole campaign of who made my clothes. And yes, it did start with the tragic Rana factory collapse. But that kind of murmur has really become a very loud shout. And I think it's very much facilitated and amplified by the digital platforms that are presented with social media. So this kind of confrontational attitude towards the brands that we advocate, I'm all here for. Ippus recently partnered with The Caring Group, and I know you've had some relationships with The Caring Group as well. Where do you see that kind of group or that kind of group of brands in the luxury end situated 
rooted in this landscape that you're describing of a changing relationship with nature? They are extremely powerful within the fashion industry. You know, they're respected and they're home to some of the most impactful trend-setting brands that this industry has. And I think that whole element of setting trends and setting the bar is where I think smaller independent brands will look up and say, well, what's happening? What can I be part of from my kind of level of where I am? And so Caring has the reach and the power to really shape this industry in a way that a small independent brand or a startup emerging designer just simply couldn't. And I think it's not just about what they're doing within, you know, caring in their houses, but if you look at their initiative, like the Fashion Pact, which is a coalition of companies in fashion and textile industry, that's not just luxury sector. Because you could easily say that, well, Caring's a luxury brand, so, you know, that doesn't resonate with your everyday person. But the Fashion Pact, you know, that's got brands in there like H&M, Gap, Nike. So these are high street brands, very relatable. So what you're seeing is top down, bottom up, middle across, that kind of movement. And for me, it's only when we have this kind of all hands on deck approach that we'll be able to really tackle climate change and tackle some of these issues, which I think if we're being quite honest with each other, just feel so overwhelming otherwise. Samato, one of the things that I'm curious about is where does your passion for sustainable fashion come from? I was always working in the fashion industry as a creative, you know, I'd worked as a fashion designer, I'd worked in PR and marketing roles. But if I'm being 100% honest, I think I always felt that there was something missing when I finished my day. And as I stumbled into sustainable fashion, and it really was a stumbling, you know, I literally crossed paths with Susie Amos Cameron and the can of worms could no longer be sealed. You know, it was this this thing that just became its own <laughs> its own creation. I realised that what I think I need to work in this fashion industry is that connection to something more meaningful. And if you ask me, that's what sustainable fashion gives you. It gives you something that is about people. And it's not just about the UK or America or the Western world. It's about Bangladesh. It's about Myanmar. It's about this global community that we're all part of. And this common denominator that we all wear clothes every single day. I think fashion can be sometimes seen as quite a fickle industry and as a kind of a woman of colour, I've often felt invisible in that space. But when I moved into the sustainable fashion space, I just met so many incredible people who have the right kind of motivations that resonated with me, who want to do well for the planet, for people. And that just made me feel like I was part of a community of people that wanted to leave a positive legacy. So it just felt like home. I love how at the top of the interview, there was a mention of language. It's so fascinating how communication is such a through line here for this podcast where we are communicating. <laughs> she mentioned the word fashion and the word clothing and how those two things are the same in terms of materials. And yet the connotation and imagery that's brought by the word, oh, my clothes versus fashion feels wildly different. It made me ask myself, you know, how many of these single word changes could impact how we talk about biodiversity or even how we talk about science, how we talk about these huge concepts that maybe could be really more relatable with a single word? I think that's exactly right, Britt. And so much so, and, and, and exactly as Samata pointed out, because it's where you see yourself and where you find yourself in the language. And I think that's exactly the same with concepts like biodiversity and nature. 
by their very nature, some of these terminologies can be exclusive or can keep people out of the discussion or a dialogue because they don't see themselves in it. And I, I really like the idea of finding the language to make some of these issues accessible and to bring some of these insights to people who might not otherwise see themselves in the discussion. So, Britt, this actually seems like a great moment for me to introduce you to Marie-Claire DeVoe. She's the Chief Sustainability Officer for Caring, which is a global luxury group that manages brands such as Gucci, Saint Laurent, Alexander McQueen, and many more. Marie-Claire, thank you so much for making the time to join our podcast today. In October last year, IPBIS announced its first ever private sector partnership with the Caring Group. What is the connection between caring and biodiversity? Alors, it's very important because for me, there are two main connections. In a very operational sense, biodiversity is directly linked to caring business and the products that our brands create. I will give you a concrete example. We rely on uh, cotton, cashmere, and viscose. So it means agriculture, farming, and forestry. So it's one side. On the other side, the creative side, biodiversity and nature are a source of uh, inspiration for our brand's creative designer. So in 2019, we know Caring was named by the Knights Global 100 Index as the second most sustainable company across all industries and the most sustainable in luxury and fashion. What other kinds of specific actions can a business like the Caring Group take to reduce the impact of its operations on nature? First, to know where our impacts are, we put in place a specific uh, tool called our environmental profit loss account. It's a way to measure where our most important impacts are. So not only in our own operations, but also in our supply chains, you can identify the most important programs to implement and also which programs are the most efficient. I will take the example of cashmere. It's one of the raw material which is very important in uh, the luxury uh, sector. So our brands use cashmere sourced from Mongolian uh, goat herders. Back in 2014, Kering set up the Sustainable Cashmere Project and we partner with the Wildlife Conservation Society to support the herders community in Mongolia so to adopt the most sustainable practices at the same time on the environmental side, on the social side, and also about the animal welfare standard. So we have the same kind of programs for wool, for uh, viscose, and of course for leather, because leather is key in our uh, industry. Do you incorporate any non-animal products, any non-animal fibers from nature into any of the products that you're producing? What we want, it's uh, each time to have the most sustainable raw material and it's the same thing for the processes. And each time we try to push innovation to find alternatives raw materials. So, uh, for example, uh, how can I use a mushroom to do a kind of laser? For the processes, how can I do uh, dyeing with uh, microorganisms? You know, uh, when you want really to reduce your environmental footprint, you have to be very open to uh, innovative solutions 
it's not easy because we are working in the luxury sector. So we have to be sure that uh, even if it's a very interesting innovation on sustainability side, it will respect the highest standard of quality that our customers are expecting. You've talked about some of the sort of the input elements to the work that you're doing, like the fibers and some of the other materials. Once you've produced products, once you've sold products, how important is reporting on sustainability to your shareholders and to the broader community for you? When I speak about sustainability, one of the key words, it's about transparency. Transparency for all our stakeholders. So first step, we have a legal reporting to do. But we want to go a step ahead. We decided to share with all our stakeholders every three years where we are. So we did this exercise for the first time in January 2020. We have invited a number of partners, NGOs, and it was interesting to share where we are, but also to listen to them publicly, how they were thinking about the results and perhaps the things that we didn't achieve in the best manner. And uh, thank you for that. Uh, IPBS was also with there in January 2020. And I think it's really uh, key to do that if we want to show the most honestly way where we are. And it's also very useful to identify also key actions that we can develop with other sectors or also with competitors. Because uh, to have a collective approach, it's quite key when you are in sustainability. Marie-Claire, in January of this year at the World Economic Forum in Davos, the 2020 edition of the World Economic Forum Global Risks Report was published. And for the first time ever, it identified biodiversity loss as one of the top five risks to global business. Now, I mean, apart from caring, because obviously caring as a group has taken this on board, but is your perspective that CEOs and shareholders more broadly, not just in caring, are really starting to understand the value of nature? You have more and more coalitions between business leaders to speak about biodiversity and only to mention the OP2B. The OP2B coalition is a coalition of companies in the agriculture industry and it's really focused on how they can protect biodiversity. And what is interesting, it's also to see that you can have cross-fertilization between the coalitions because, of course, as also luxury company, we work closely with the food industry when you think about uh, farming. So it creates a very powerful coalitions of company really to say that now we have to act and we have to protect nature for ethics reasons, of course, but also for business reasons. So I think it can really make a real change in the way to think and to act with the biodiversity and the nature. The power of those business coalitions that you're talking about to bring about the kind of transformative change that the IPBIS report spoke about, I think, are, is quite immense. But there's still a lot of skepticism in some sectors about the idea of greenwashing. Do you think that the growing business voice on environmental issues is more about public relations for business? Or do you get the sense that there really is a deeper commitment to sustainability that's starting to develop? What is the most important for me is the fact that companies have become more vocal about their commitments and the effort they are making. 
historically fashion brands will only take responsibility for their own direct operation. But now really we are seeing some proactively working inside their supply chain. You know, it was not obvious to speak about uh, cattle farming with a designer. Mm. So it's also about to change the mindset. And what it's great when you speak now with the designers and the design team about this kind of issue, they are really ready not only to listen, but to do things proactively. So I think it's quite changing. On the other side, you mentioned it because also consumers and above all, uh, Gen Z and millennials are asking more and more questions about sustainability. Perhaps sometime some company would like to do greenwashing or they would like to speak without acting. I think it's quite dangerous for them because now thanks to the social media, thanks to journalists, thanks to NGOs, If you speak and you don't act, I think it can be also uh, very tough for uh, your uh, reputation. After, you have to be honest, when you are speaking about biodiversity, it's not always easy because first you have to know the full traceability of your raw materials. After, you have to uh, implement a specific uh, supply chain, as we said, to work with local community to find the environmental criteria and the social criteria because we have to pay attention to never forget also the social working conditions. So that's why it's not always easy, but uh, I think that it's changing and you will have less and less greenwashing in all the sectors because also we have to trust the private sector to act very concretely. You haven't always worked in the private sector. I know you held several positions, senior positions in the French public service where you advised top government leaders. How important is the link between business and government for creating better policies and regulations on biodiversity and nature? For me, the, the business community and governments working together is totally essential to drive the topic forward. Really, company cannot do it alone. And it's the same thing for uh, the governments. They can put in place policies, they can put in place regulation around biodiversity. It's key. But if you want also to encourage people to go beyond the regulation, I think it's also nice to recognize the effort that uh, suppliers can make on a voluntary uh, approach. And our approach with the, the Fashion Pact was exactly this one. Last year, for the G7 in Biarritz, when our uh, French president Emmanuel Macron gave this mission to uh, François-Henri Pinault, it was really with this spirit saying, please, could you organize a coalition in your sector, but of course, not only luxury, to be able to implement concrete actions on biodiversity, climate change, and the protection of the ocean. And I think up to now, it's quite a success because we have uh, 67 groups. It represents over 250 uh, brands. But I think we are only at the beginning of uh, this uh, conversation because really the first step, it's really to put also nature at the center of the strategy. So our podcast is called Nature Insight, Speed Dating with the Future. What's the one critical message you'd like to get across to other decision makers in business 
about biodiversity and nature's contributions to people. Alors, if I have only one sentence to share, don't wait to take action. Even if you don't know exactly what you have to do, the first thing is to say, act to protect the nature because uh, you know better than uh, I, we have less than 10 years to bend the curve of biodiversity. So it's really key, not only to speak, but to act. And I'm sure that together, we will be able to, to tackle this issue in less than 10 years. But it's quite ambitious, I know it. Marie-Claire DeVoe, thank you so much for sharing your expertise from the Caring Group and your own personal expertise on Nature Insight. Thank you. You know, it, it is rather ambitious to think about change and to think about curbing the loss of biodiversity, especially within the next 10 years, and certainly with how much the world has changed for our species and just the last few months even as we record this. But, you know, one thing that keeps becoming clear is this idea of ecosystems and of system dynamics. And so much of what I heard her mention had to do with collaborations. The fact that we have rising levels of activism, but not just in the consumer piece, but in the shareholder piece and in the production piece and in the business piece. And that these rising levels of activism and action are working as a system. One of the things that we've talked about a few times, Britt, is sources of hope and where we draw hope from from some of these interviews and these conversations that we've had. And I think for me, something that really stands out from this interview was I don't think I would have believed four or five years ago, let alone 10 years ago, that I would be hearing one of the world's major business houses, one of the world's major brands, talking about putting nature and biodiversity at the center of their business case, at the center of their business strategy. So even that first step, as Marie-Claire called it, I think is a tremendous step towards the type of collaboration you're talking about, and, and, and to not just the awareness, but the action that we need in this next 10-year period. That's such a fair point. And I think some of that change and some of that evolution on, on the business end of things certainly comes from values, the same way that it has for any decision maker, whether that's a single person or the leader of a country. One of the things that really stood out to me and made an impact in my life as part of the IPBIS global assessment was this idea of versions of the good life, the different visions of the good life. And I thought to myself that that's it. That really is it, especially when it comes to economic growth and commodity and just things. I am an American. I live in America. And for many here, visions of the good life have been about money and have been about commodity and been about the house and the car. But it's actually fascinating to realize that you know, economic growth alone is is not really a, a true measure of success or even more importantly, of well-being. So much of the vision of a good life and those different visions, I think, has to do with where those value priorities are placed. For such a long time, the mantra, the basis of all business was always profit, economic growth. And when the global assessment that IPBIS launched last year was approved by the more than 130 governments in Paris. One of the things that I think was most revolutionary about that approval process was that it included a finding amongst many that the current limited paradigm of economic growth was not going to be sufficient 
for us to achieve the kind of sustainable future that we want and that we need. And for governments to accept and to adopt that kind of language and to have business accept and adopt that kind of language and to look at different conceptions of what success might mean, what the good life might mean beyond just profit and beyond economic growth, and to say, what is well-being as a business? And what are our consumers wanting in terms of their well-being and the well-being of the areas in which they're living and, and the environment within which they live? I think this kind of language that we talked about earlier and the importance of using language to see yourself and to find yourself in complex issues I think when you start to see changes in language, you can also start to see hope for changes in action as well. Absolutely. That's it for this episode of Nature Insight, speed dating with the future. I'm Rob Spall. And I'm Britt Garner. Next week will be the last episode of this first season of Nature Insight. It really has sped by. Absolutely. And fittingly, I'll be talking to Brigitte Baptiste about how in order to achieve a sustainable future for our planet, we need to consider the diverse ways different communities attach value to nature. Brigitte was the general director of the Alexander von Humboldt Biological Resources Research Institute for almost 10 years. She's now the director of Universidad Ayan in Colombia and a member of IPBIS's multidisciplinary expert panel. She's also one of the chairs of the Values Assessment. So make sure you're subscribed to this podcast and leave us a review wherever you listen. In the meantime, you can learn more about IPBIS's work on www.ipbis.net or on any of our social media channels. Just search for at IPBES. That's at I-P-B-E-S. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.